Hi, I'm Seb Coe, and welcome to my podcast, Extraordinary Tales. Joining me today is a man who has an extraordinarily varied and decorated career, a bandwidth of breathtaking achievement from elite sports to accomplished broadcaster. He first captured the UK's attention for his prowess in wheelchair basketball, competing at the Sydney Paralympic Games in 2000, and then winning bronze for Team GB four years later in Athens. I'm very grateful to him, not just because he's joining me today, but because he also found time to play an instrumental role in the successful bid and then delivery of the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Since then, he has become one of the nation's favourite TV presenters. He hosted Channel 4's BAFTA-winning daily Paralympic coverage in 2012 and is now an exceptional documentary maker travelling the globe to cover some of society's most pressing issues. More than that, though, he is a man who has inspired people well beyond our own shores, living a life defined by what he can do, not what he can't do. Welcome to the podcast, Adi Adepatan. <laughs> hey, Seb, that is an intro. That is an I never thought I'd get an intro like that from you unless you'd had a few beers, mate. Uh, well, I can tell you, you won't get an intro like that, but I haven't had any beers. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to introduce me every time I see you like that, Seb. That's how it has to be done. <laughs> okay, Addy, I've got my marching orders. Listen, <laughs> let me open, if I may, with a moment of candor. My kids think you are one of the coolest of my mates. And for God's sake, please don't tell Daly Thompson. And I think you know why. And I'm going to ask oh. you to share that with the listeners today. Oh, I, I will. Um, I, I, I hope Daly's listening. Uh, <laughs> did, you hear that? did you hear that, Daly? Addy, cooler, cooler than you, Daly. I just want you to, to know that. Play that on loop for Daly. He needs to hear that. <laughs> but I think it's, um, I remember we'd, it was after we'd had um, a meeting. I think it might have been a local meeting or something. And I think we'd gone off to... Uh, to, to have a pizza and it was at Fulham um, it was in Ful near Fulham Road, Fulham Polish Road at the station and there was a pizza place and there was some escalators uh, at, the, at the pizza place and you guys all came up to the escalators and I think you're like oh there's a lift daddy there's a lift we can go down in a lift and I was like no don't worry about that I use escalators all the time so I hopped on the escalators and, and went down backwards. Um, and I forget, I take this for granted because I've been using escalators all my life in a wheelchair. But I think it just, it, your kids' eyes popped out their heads watching this guy in a wheelchair go backwards on an escalator. Um, and and I, I thought it was really funny. But you know, the, the funny thing is, uh, as I said, I totally forget about how, what impact that has on people, especially security guards. And a lot of security guards go absolutely berserk because they think I'm going to fall and hurt myself. And it's all about insurance. So what I do now is I hold on to the escalator and I go on and they see me get, getting onto the escalator and they run up and they say, sir, sir, sir. No, you don't need to do that. You're OK. And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And as I go down a couple of steps, I go like this. <laughs> and they absolutely fall to the floor. <laughs> Addy, my kids are in their, you know, some of them are in their late 20s and they still remember that. It was quite, it was an indelible moment <laughs> in their upbringing. Um, Addy, if I may, 
uh, a bit of early years uh, scene setting. You were born in Lagos in Nigeria. Uh, you contracted polio 15, 16 months old. Uh, you moved to London at that time with your parents, which I guess self-evidently is a bit of a shock to the young system and equally probably for your parents. What was the primary motivation for that upheaval? So I contracted polio at the age of 15 months old. Um, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, and you know, having one child with a disability um, was always gonna be tough. And this is uh, Lagos in the 70s. Lagos now is, is tough if you have a disability, but back in the 70s, there was no infrastructure for children with disabilities. Uh, but my older sister, she's only a year and a half older than me. She she had she was born with Down syndrome. So my parents had two young children with disabilities, and they just wanted to give us the best opportunities or the best chances in life. Um, and so for them, yeah, they, they they felt that there was the only way that we were going to really have the best opportunities um and 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 in it might sound a little bit glib but i also think in survival terms because um the mortality rate for kids with disabilities um back then was was very high so i think for them it was not just about opportunities it was also about life and death for for myself and potentially for my sister um so they borrowed money from friends and family and used all their savings and initially, they could only afford to get take one of us over. And they had this agonizing decision between myself and my sister, who they could um, take over. And they felt because my, my needs were physical, because I couldn't walk, and I was crawling around on what my mum said was these dirty floors in the streets of Nigeria, of Lagos, she just thought she needed to get me out of there. Um, so they took myself first first over to the UK and we settled in East End of London. Um, and the idea was for them to get jobs over in the UK and save up enough money to bring my sister over. And it subsequently took about the best part of 10 years, um, which was really tough for us as a family, you know, and or even at that young age, I had knowledge and understood the weight of what, my family had done and the fact that my sister had been left behind and that you know they were trying to bring her over but also how much of what that opportunity they'd done or how much sacrifice they'd made to, to to allow me to have an opportunity in my life so yeah it was um it was a tough time emotional time and i'll always be thankful to my parents for the sacrifices they made Actually, slight digression for a moment, Eddie, because I mentioned in my opening remarks about the, you know, absolutely terrific help you gave London 2012 Olympic and a Paralympic bid. Uh, but I hadn't realised you'd moved to East London. Um, that must have given you a, an insight into some of the challenges that we were trying to address through the Olympic legacy. When I knew and found out that the bid was going to be in East London, um, I think I cried a little bit, actually, because growing up in East London, I, you know, I came over in 1976 um, and I'd seen the area and East London now is this really fashionable area with, you know, it's very gentrified and seen as quite chic. 
with very expensive houses and, and shopping centers. But back then, it was desolate. Back then, you know, the, it was a really deprived, um, even though the people were very vibrant, the area was bleak. There was so many rundown buildings, um, such lack of opportunities, and, and that really impacted the local community. So to, to, to find out that the Olympics were, were coming there was, was actually initially really hard to compute. It's like the Olympics are coming <laughs> to Stratford. Are, are you guys bonkers? Why are you? Yeah, well, here? actually, we were. <laughs> I think we all thought we were a bit bonkers at the time. <laughs> But it was so much needed. I was so, so excited because now I was a fan of the games for, from as far as, as young as I, uh, as I can remember. You know, I mean, I, I remember the Moscow Olympics, uh, seeing yourself uh, compete and Steve Ovet, and then um, and Los Angeles and seeing Daly in Los Angeles and yourself in, in, in Los Angeles. And you guys were my heroes. Watching uh, you guys, uh, well, Moscow, I just... We didn't have a TV, so we heard that on radio. But um, uh, in Los Angeles, we had a TV, and I got to see you guys for the first time, and it was in black and white. But yeah, it just blew me away because I, th I thought you were about to tell me your parents let you stay up late to watch it. No, they didn't quite let me stay up late to watch it, but I watched it. I probably watched the highlights the next day. But <laughs> I, I just remember it's the Olympics was this and it still is, this huge, massive spectacle, this global um, behemoth. And I thought, how on earth is that going to come to Stratford? East, East London, you know, of all places on my doorstep. This is the thing that I've been dreaming of competing in all my life, and I got the opportunity to go to it um, and, and travel all over the world. And I thought, well, all I should have done is stayed in Stratford. It would have come to me. <laughs> Look, I'm, I want to talk about the Olympic uh, and Paralympic Games and, and the legacy. And, of course, you were a decorated uh, broadcaster uh, in 2012. But I'll, I'll come to that in a few moments. But I'm, I'm really keen to understand a, a little bit more about the challenge of being a young person with disability and impairment because you spent your younger years, didn't you, not in a wheelchair, but in calipers. Then you got the wheelchair. And I guess that is a huge moment in terms of greater accessibility um, and I guess, again, a, a profound impact on your self-esteem, your independence. This is, I know you've talked about this publicly, but I'd just love to tease that out with you a little bit. Mm. It's a good question, Seb, because uh, for me, it's, it's easy for me to take for granted the stuff that I went through because, you know, you just, you just go through these things as a kid, you know, and you don't really think about how it impacted you and what, what um, it did to your personality and how it changed my life. But I grew up in a world which was basically not set up for me. <laughs> you know, I have, I, I, and well, 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 the, the thing is, when you when you look at disability, and there's a thing called the the social disability model, um, which yeah. was created by sociologists back in the in the twenties, and it basically says that um, your disability is not caused by you; it's the, the impairment is caused by the barriers that society puts in front of you. 
And I've had all my life to deal with the moment I step out of my house, barriers. And I walked on calipers. Um, I, I, I would walk to school. I, I went, my parents insisted that I went to a mainstream school, which was brilliant in one way because it set me up for everyday life in the real world. I mean, if I'd gone to a school for kids with disabilities, I think I would have lived in... Did you, did you have the choice? Did you have the choice to go to a school for di- with a uh, special disability uh, so, skill set? So my, my parents were told that they had to send me to a school for children with disabilities. They, and, and they fought that? Yeah, and they fought that. They um, went on a legal battle against the Education Authority in Newham. I missed a whole year of schooling whilst this battle went back and forth. Um, and it also took uh, the best part of a year to convince a school to accept me because all the schools were, were, were basically cracking themselves. They were like, how do we cope with this guy? Because they never had someone who had a disability in the school and the teachers didn't know. Especially it. going down the stairs backwards. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that, well it's funny you should say that because... Um, Stairs have always, I've always found an innovative way to get downstairs. And when I used calipers, I used to um, slide, because I went to an old school that was built uh, around the the time of the First World War, three stories high. Um, And when I had to go to the lessons on the top floor and come down, I would slide down the banisters on my stomach. And most kids would get detention for that, but the teachers gave me special dispensation because of my disability. So I would go sliding down on, on banisters on my stomach at pace, taking kids out. So yeah. Yeah, I almost feel I almost feel like the you know the television channel that at this moment warns people at home not to try this in the privacy of your own home. <laughs> well, there was there was definitely lots of things that my teachers allowed me to get away with at school and during my life that would probably go against health and safety today. But I mean, going going back to your question, it was, um, you know, having a disability had a a massive impact on my life and it it kind of, I had to, I, I had to overcome, you know, first of all, my doubts about myself because you go to, when you go to an able-bodied school, you see uh, 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 kids who are able-bodied, they're running around and they're doing things that physically you can't do or you feel you, it'll be harder or I have to find another way of doing. But I think the bigger thing actually was the way I looked. I, I really, when, you, when you're at school, you want, or when you're a young kid, you want to blend in and you want to, you don't want to stand out. And I couldn't help but stand out. One, I was one of only two black kids that went to my, my, my school. Um, and two, uh, because of my physical disability, I walked with a, a, a profound limp. I had these calipers. So if you've ever seen Forrest Gump, You'd see, I, uh, the, and you remember the sequence or the scene in Forrest Gump when he's run from the bullies. I had those big iron rods going into a hospital boot and my leg was locked straight. Um, so I walked like C-3PO from Star Wars after he put on a bit of chewing gum. Um, so there was no way that I could avoid kids not staring at me. And I had to find a way of emotionally coping with that. And I did, dealt with that with humour and with the fact that I was good at sport. Um, and, and the funny thing is, you know, when kids looked at me, uh, 
I had all of the looks of someone that shouldn't be good at sport. You know, I were I, I was in a caliper, I walked with a limp, I was pretty short. Um, and my mum dressed me up in a pink checkered flared suit on my first day of school. So nothing about me. No, so- no, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I can't let that pass. <laughs> a pink checked flared suit. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. It was a my mum, my mum had high- I'm just guessing, I'm just guessing the calipers were a mere detail. Compared to that sartorial elegance. Uh, listen, it was it was it, what what was what was good about it, and at the time I didn't think it was great because I didn't think that far ahead. But may I, I think maybe my mum had another ploy, and it was to take my mind off my physical disability and put my mind okay. on my fashion disability. Do you know? What I mean? <laughs> she's, like, <laughs> she's like dress him up in the most ridiculous outfit, but she seriously thought you know this was the best form of clothing for me to wear on school. To, to school um, on my first day to make an impression. She wanted me to make an impression and she wanted kids to realise that I was smart and, and respect me. But she also combed my hair into this massive afro that Daly would be proud of. It was Daly circa 1970. <laughs> I looked like a microphone head uh, with a side part in the size of the Blackwall Tunnel. Um, and so, yeah, I went to school and I looked completely different. But... I guess it got me used to in the early days standing out and it made me realize maybe not at the time, but later on that actually it was cool to be different. It was cool. It was okay to, 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 to be different and to stand out. But at the time I didn't think it was that cool. Well, <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying hard not to laugh here and, and certainly <laughs> smile through this, which is, I guess what we should be doing. Um, okay sport you've talked about it how did you first get into basketball so i'd never heard of what well, i'd heard of basketball um for able-bodied athletes uh, i'd never heard of wheelchair basketball before i was football mad you know growing up in east london um our school was in upton park uh so you're obviously a chelsea fan then yeah you're having a laugh stop swearing on this podcast <laughs> Jammy so-and-so's winning that blooming Champions League thing. <laughs> but well, it's all that West Ham talent we've taken in the past. <laughs> let, let's, uh, let's not talk about it. Let's move on. Let's move on about you and your success. But yeah, I was a stone's throw from, from, from Upton Park. Uh, I, I, it's funny enough, I because um, I like to buck the trend, for some reason, everyone in my school supported West Ham and I thought well I want to be different so I decided to support Arsenal when I was um, when I was a kid and then in 1980 West Ham won the um, the FA Cup and um, my next door neighbour uh, his mum told him and he was like he's a little bit older than me that he had to take me to the Barking Road to see West Ham carrying the FA, the FA Cup on the open top bus and we lived literally uh, Was that against Fulham? Uh, no, it was uh, it was against Arsenal. West Ham beat Arsenal. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. Trevor Brooking goal. Um, so it took us to the. Um, I think the Fulham one was in 1902. Uh, I think said probably. Ran, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one well. I do. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, my next door neighbour took me onto the Barking Road, and I I, I saw West um, Trevor Brooking and the open top bus, and I got caught up in the whole celebration. Became a West Ham supporter, and I was football crazy. 
And that was the thing. And in my mind, my dream was I was going to be the first disabled kid with polio to play football for England and to play for West Ham. Um, and I, I had these mad dreams. But then when I was about 12 or 13, I was spotted by some physiotherapists who were based in a, uh, at a disability school in Canning Town. Their names were Owen and Kay. And they were way ahead of their times. They worked with disabled kids, but they believed that disabled kids were being let down by the education system. They felt that disabled kids who went to disability schools were being wrapped up in cotton wool and they weren't being shown the real world and they weren't being given the tools that would help them survive in the real world. And they felt that one of the biggest tools to helping them survive was sport. And so they set up a wheelchair basketball team called the Newham Rollers. And they set up a charity called the Association of Wheelchair Children. And what they did was teach disabled kids wheelchair skills, got us playing wheelchair basketball and took us to tournaments all over the, the all over Europe and all over the, all over the country. They'd heard about me because I went to this mainstream school and I'd done a sponsor walk for my school and I was in the local newspaper, the Newham Recorder, and they wanted to get in contact with me, but it wasn't as easy to do um, back then. It just so happened they lived two blocks away from me and they spotted me as I was being raced through the streets in a Tesco shopping trolley by my friends. And the reason why I was being raced through the streets in the shopping trolley is because I couldn't keep up with my friends on my on my calipers. So we thought the best way for me to get around as rapidly as possible, which I think was good thinking, was to get in a shopping trolley. And these physios just be, happened, ONK happened to be dropping off some kids um, from a basketball match um, home and they were on their way home when they spotted me and they pulled up in this bus looked out the window, they were very strangely dressed, looked like hippies to me, and they were like, uh, they said, you're Eddie, aren't you? And I was like, how do they know my name? And they asked me if I'd like to play wheelchair basketball. And at first I was like, who on earth are these people? And why on earth would I want to get in a wheelchair? And this was the 80s, Seb. You know, thanks yeah. for what you, largely what you and your team did with London 2012, we changed the, the, the world's perception of Paralympic sport and disability sport. Um, and, but for me back then in 84, I'd never seen anyone in, in, in a wheelchair. I'd, and and uh, I'd never seen anyone play wheelchair sport. And also there was this massive stigma surrounding getting in wheelchairs. People who were in wheelchairs were seen as less intelligent than able-bodied people. They were seen as less cool. You know, it was seen as something that would hold you back um, in your life. So there was absolutely no way I was gonna get in this wheelchair, but they were really persistent. They found out what school I went to, spoke to my teachers, spoke to my parents, and it took about four months for them to convince me to go to Stoke Mandeville, where they were hosting the Junior Wheelchair Games. When they took me to Stoke Mandeville, I first of all, I was overwhelmed by seeing so many people with different disabilities. I'd never been surrounded by people. I'd never seen people with spinal cord injuries, you know, people with spinal bifida, with cerebral palsy, amputees. It was just mind-blowing for me. But then it just so happened on that same weekend that the Great Britain um, wheelchair basketball men's team were training. And there was this big sort of like, um, and the excitement about these guys playing. And we all went to go and watch them. I gathered around to watch them. And I was expecting to see this mundane, 
boring, slightly embarrassing sport. And I was so wrong. These guys were in state-of-the-art wheelchairs. The chairs were funky colours with the wheels angled. They were flying up and down the court. And within the first five minutes, said, I saw this guy with no legs fly into the basket in his wheelchair at top speed and suddenly gets taken out by this other guy. The chair gets launched into the air and I see this guy with no legs rolling across the floor. And I'm like, wow, you know, seeing sparks flying. And then this guy gets up on, the, on his stumps, you know, fist bumps the other guy in the chair, no histrionics, gets back in the chair and carries on playing. And I looked at these guys and, I, and immediately I was like, this is my tribe. These are my people. This is where I want to be, what I want to be doing. And straight away, I did not, for, for the first time, I didn't see their wheelchairs. What I saw was elite athletes and I wanted to be like them. And that was the moment that I was like, this is for me. You know, another thing, great thing about it is I came from East London and I say this about London. London can be the biggest place in the world, but it also can be the smallest place in the world. And in my area, people didn't really have big dreams of doing big things. And for the first time I met people who had ideas of, we want to be the best in the world. We want to win medals. We want to go and travel the world and we want to compete and play professionally. And it just changed my mindset completely. And that was it. I was hooked. And also they had the biggest arms I'd ever seen. I was like, I need arms like that. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm interested because you know, I'm a great believer that you introduce young people to extraordinary moments that are for, you know, at a formative stage of their lives. They just see the world in a different way. I'm sure we can all, all of us listening to this today, can, can sort of compute that. At what point, though, having recognised that this, these were your people, this was your sport, at what point did you think that a Paralympics might beckon yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. I think, um, so I, I, I got my first wheelchair when I was about 14 or 15. Um, and I started playing for a basketball team called the Tottenham Tigers. And there was... Uh, so you've gone Arsenal, West Ham and now Tottenham, Addy. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. It's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. <laughs> it's like, I, I had no affinity for Tottenham at all, but I, I, I did the, the team. I hear you. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I was playing for this team. They were one of the best teams in London and they were really well organised. And there were two players in the team, four players actually, one called Anne Wilde and she was similar age to me. Um, another guy called Andy Blake and a guy called Paul Pearson. Anne Wilde got selected for the GB women's wheelchair basketball team when she was about 15, 14, 15 for the Seoul 1988 um, Paralympics. Andy Blake, who was in the team for basketball, he got selected for swimming for the Seoul Paralympics. And Paul was on the men in the men's squad. He didn't go, but he was in the men's squad. And I saw these guys and I was competing against them in, in, in training and, and, and they were in the same team as me. And they came back and they talked about Seoul. And I think it was one of the first times that the Paralympics was held in the same place as the Olympics. And they talked about how amazing it was. Um, it wasn't televised. And I just listened to their stories every day. And I, and I was like, 
it just totally rubbed off on me. I was like, I want to be like these guys. They're in my team. You know, they, 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 they've gone to the Paralympics. If they can do this, I can do it as well. Um, and that was it. From that moment, I went on and, that, and, and, and we all together had that same mindset. And we all trained and pushed each other as a group. Um, and it was really nice to see us all. And we were kind of all Owen and Kay, the two physiotherapists I told you of. We were their generation. And probably, you know, five, six, seven of us out of all the kids that they brought up ended up competing at the Paralympics. And it's because we all grew together and we all watched each other and we all became competitive and wanted to, to be better than each other. Um, so those were the moments, you know, and it was meeting other people who showed me what was possible. And I think you, if I may say so, I think you've just given probably the best articulation to the importance of sport, not just as the crash bang wallet of a result and, you know, in a championship, but the bridgehead that it creates for young people through self-confidence uh, and self-esteem. If I roll the script on a little bit further, okay, Sydney 2000, bronze medal off the back of that four years later in Athens. Tell me what that actually meant to you when you put that GB vest on uh, in a Paralympic Games. Wow. You know, how that simply because we're on the verge, you know, we're a few weeks shy uh, of the Paralympic Games. Again, it's going to capture the imagination of, well, the world, but a lot of people in the UK because of what you have done and, and 2012 meant. You know, if, if somebody's watching those Paralympic Games in a few weeks' time, just help them understand what's going through the heads of a young person, and maybe not so young, that's made it into that team. It's everything, Seb. It's, it's everything you work for in your life. And it begins for all of us. Well, I think for many of us, as, in particular myself, as a dream, as a dream that's almost an impossible dream. You know, I, I started off dreaming of competing for, for England, as I said, because I loved football. And I used to be in my garden on my calipers and I'd drive my neighbours bonkers, blasting the ball at his fence, um, blasting it and doing this commentary. A deputant scores the winning goal for England, you know, and I'd be like nine, 10 years old, you know, and then that, that transforms to me being in a wheelchair taking those shots um, in, in a wheelchair and, and doing the commentary in my head and, and imagining myself competing, wearing that vest, hearing that anthem, hearing the people scream and cheer for me, knowing that people look beyond my disability and respect me for me as an athlete, for, for, for being someone who's achieved great things. Um, and then the journey that, I had to go through in order to achieve it. My parents were not fans of me becoming um, a, a basketball player. They were typical immigrant parents who felt that my route to success was through education. My parents were like, uh, you have to go to school, you have to study and you have to get A, 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 A in all your subjects. Become a doctor, become an accountant, become a lawyer. You know, all, all, all of these professions go to university and, and, 
and 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 when I said to my parents, um, I think it would have been I would have been about 16, 17, I said, I'm not gonna go to university. No, I was I was younger than that, I was 15. I said, I'm not gonna go to university, I'm gonna become a wheelchair basketball player and I'm gonna be great. And my dad thought I was bonkers. I'd have bought tickets for that conversation. Where he got when my first wheelchair arrived, um, uh, he, he and so incidentally, my first wheelchair was that the money was raised for that by Frank Bruno's boxing club, um, he, and and he did a lot of fundraising in the area. And I remember when it arrived, my dad was so disgusted at this wheelchair that he threw it out of the house, and he said he never wanted to see it again. So I had to sneak the wheelchair off the street um, um, and into the house and I hid it under a piece of tarpaulin in the garden. And I used to um, say to my parents when I would go training um, with the basketball team, I used to say to them that I was going to the library to study and I would push miles to, 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 to train um, and I'd go and train and then I'd come back late. And my Eddie, do you honestly think they bought that story? No, no. Well, my dad phoned up the, the, my, friend, my <laughs> dad phoned up the local library, found out I wasn't there. And I got into so much trouble, so much trouble. But I'd had to create, think creatively all the time. And in the end, um, it came to a point where I realised that it wasn't going to work. Um, I wasn't going to achieve my dream if I was staying at home. And I knew that because at the point, this is like me sort of digressing slightly, but I tried loads of different sports. I wasn't really interested in any other than basketball, but I happened to but be- You were a, you were a junior powerlifter, weren't you? Yes, I was- you I, got to, to, I think you got to 69 on the- uh, in, in, uh, in tennis. It, it, on the tennis ranking list. Yeah, exactly. I tried loads of different sports, but I, in the early age, I was- the powerlifting got a hold of me because I was I was very light and I was very strong and I was British junior record holder and I was selected to go to the uh, world junior powerlifting championships in Miami when I was 16. Um, and my dad said that I couldn't go. It was around the time of my mock exams. He said, no, you have to prepare for your mock exams. And I was devastated and he also said to me I wasn't allowed to play wheelchair basketball until after my GCSEs and I had this feeling this nagging feeling that while I wasn't playing wheelchair basketball everyone else was getting better than me and that I was going to have to play catch-up and there was no way that I could spend a whole year not playing so a friend of mine told me that um, what I needed to do was get out of the house and he said if you write a letter to the council saying that you're pretending to be your dad, saying that um, he's kicking you out of the house and forge his signature, you'll get your own flat from the council. So I wrote a letter to the council saying that I'm Mr. Adepitan, I've had enough of my son, he's uh, this and that, I'm kicking out of the house. Um, and my dad didn't know anything about it, forged his signature, um, said he's, my son's disabled and, and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, the council came uh, I went to the council offices they assessed me and everything like that and at 17 I just left I didn't tell my parents one day I was there I think I just turned 17 and then I moved out and then I went on this journey on my own to try and get into the Paralympics squad I had no money I had to rely on income support at first I couldn't afford to feed myself I went to friends houses for food um, I, I, I got a car from Mobility, which is a scheme that helps disabled people. Yeah. 
I put two pounds of petrol in my car. I put the car in neutral when I was driving to training to make sure that I'd, I'd have enough petrol to get into to, to get to training and back. Um, and I it, I it took me ten years to get selected for the squad. I got dropped from the the Paralympic team. I think seven times. Um, for for each major championships, for world championships, European championships, and three no two Paralympics, uh, Barcelona and Atlanta, I I was cut just one player short from those games, and and I almost gave up, almost gave up, and so when the letter came through the post in in April two thousand, to to say that I I'd, I'd finally been selected, I, I I can't even put it into words, Seb. This was absolute i i'd thrown i put everything on 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 black to get this you know i and i've done it on my own you know with friends but without my family uh, my, my my parents in fact when i got selected i said to i i i hadn't spoken to my parents for almost 10 years um i my my, my i didn't tell them where i'd moved to my mum sort of found out sort of towards the latter stage and we were starting to speak as the sydney games um happened and i i remember going to my parents house because i just started talking to them tentatively and i said i'm going to be away for a little bit um but i'll speak to you when i came come back and i didn't tell them i was going to the paralympics and uh i was at the opening ceremony of Sydney, the Sydney Games, and uh, I w- went out with the Team GB round the track, and suddenly the phone that my mum had given me rang, and I picked up the phone as we're going round the track because I could see it was my mum calling, and she was like, "Ha, you are in Sydney at the Paralympics." I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, yeah." She said, "I can't see you on the TV. You did not tell us you were going to the Paralympics." I said. Yeah, I'm, I'm competing in the Paralympics. So the first my parents knew that I was competing and that I made it was when they saw me accidentally on the TV at, in the opening ceremony. I came back home because the BBC had shown the Paralympics more than they ever in Sydney. And I remember getting out of the taxi and going, um, my dad coming out with tears in his eyes. And he gave me this big, massive hug. Um, and, you know, I think that's when he finally got it. And, and and I remember uh, a few weeks later, some relatives coming around and I was in all the papers, East London, uh, son of East London goes to Paralympic Games and my dad saying to one of my uh, uncles, I told you he would always be great. I always knew he could do this. <laughs> but it was, it was that journey. And I think so many athletes go um, in their own way through those challenges and that journey. So, I, I mean, winning the medals were amazing. But for me, it was that journey, the obstacles, the emotional roller coaster that I had to get through in order to get to where I got to um, to win the to, to win those medals and to compete at the games. So it was a bronze in two thousand four in Athens, and a year later, you are an inseparable part of our bid team uh, for Singapore. Um, you know, what is the task? It's a simple one. It's to bring the games back to the UK for the first time. In 64 years, you you knew what Stoke Mandeville was about, and that's the that's the, the that was the incubator mm-hmm. uh, back in 1948 for the uh, Paralympic Games, or what then became uh, the Paralympic Games. I remember you and I having 
a really lengthy discussion. I think it was with Daly as well and, and some of the guys that were there supporting us. And we were absolutely, and I remember you being messianic about legacy, that this, was, this whole exercise was only was academic if we couldn't really in 10 years' time sit back and say, these games made a difference. Do you think you can make that claim 10 years on from mm. London 2012 that there was a sea change or there has been a sea change in attitude, particularly in the workplace, in, in, in maybe schools and colleges towards disability and impairment in the workplace, in our lives? It's a very complex question to answer. Um, in simple terms, yes. Um, because one of the, for me, one of the uh, signs that we'd made progress and that we were able uh, to, to change things was I, I felt if you could go into the street and speak to the random, to a random person and ask them to name a Paralympian um, and they could come up with, with, with a Paralympian uh, its name, then I felt that we were on our way to success. And if we could do that four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the road, then we, we, we were successful. Because I know prior to 2012, most people had heard about the Paralympics, but they didn't really know much about the athletes. Um, but I'm proud to say because of what you guys done and, you know, and your attitude to the Paralympics sport, that you could say to people, name a Paralympian, and they could name Ellie Simmons. They can name Johnny Peacock or Hannah Cockcroft. You know, they can name Paralympians and they could, and, and especially school kids as well, and talk about their achievements. Um, and, and people see Paralympic sport in a different way. They understand it better. And, and one of the things I was really proud of uh, when, you, when you took over the bid, um, Seb, was the importance that you put this Paralympics, how you decided that we were going to hold this on equal terms with the Olympics. No other games had done that. No other bid had done that. And it was glaringly obvious that no other games or, or country or bid were thinking about doing that. When we, were, when we looked at other bids in, in, in Singapore uh, in 2005, when you watch the other bids, yeah, our bid was the only one that had kids, Paralympics and legacy front and centre. It was at the heart of it. And it made me proud. It made me proud because that's in my DNA. I know and I understand the importance of legacy. Without legacy, I would not be here. You need to see people who are like yourself achieving great things to want to be able to, 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 to achieve good things yourself and to know that it's possible. So on that level, yes, we've absolutely changed. We've changed the world. We have. Um, and I'm proud that and, and, and so honoured that you got me in the team to do that. But just before I finish, uh, Seb, I just want to say, but our work is not done yet. No, I was going to ask you that question. Where else have we now got to travel? It's not done yet. I think at home, first of all, there is this um, slight disconnect between uh, Paralympic sports, Paralympic athletes and 
everyday disabled people. Um, and I know the lives of disabled people who are not athletes is still tough. It's still tough. I, I think the public may have put Paralympians in a separate box. Um, and maybe one of the problems is, is they hold, uh, that they, they look at that level and they say, every disabled person, if you are not of that level, then, then you're not worthy, which for me is wrong because you wouldn't go down the street and say, well, uh, well excuse me, you can't run the 800 meters as fast as Seb Co. So um, you're, you're, you're not worthy. That's ridiculous. And, it's, um, and it also has, is a disservice to what we do as Paralympians. Mm. We work our asses off every day to be as good as we are. So for an everyday person who isn't into sport to be able to achieve that level, it, it, it is, it's just madness. So what we need to do is to be able to really spread that um, sense of respect, that sense of uh, understanding and community from beyond sport to everybody. Um, and that's the importance of, of, of a sport in itself. I see sport as a shop window to, 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 to greater society. There's so many things that we do within our sport that should be spread to society. But then on a bigger scale, I still think there's work to be done in developing countries. You know, Africa as a continent, yeah. Asia as a continent, they still do not have enough representation in Paralympic sports and South America as well. You know, and we, the, the IPC, the IOC, all the sports governing bodies has, have really got to, they, they've got to come to grips with that. At the moment, we're, st we're, we're quite busy and I'll, this is where I will be critical, constantly thinking about the shop window, what's in the front, the, the showcase piece, the Paralympics, the Olympics. But what we've got to really think of is that long-term legacy, how we can change lives for disabled people, for a disabled person in Malawi, a disabled person in, uh, in, in Mozambique or in Pakistan or in uh, Nicaragua. That is important because their lives are unbelievably hard, unbelievably hard right now. And I think it's in the gift of us who have to give to those who don't have. So I'm going to pick you up on two uh, phrases you have just made. One is the use of the words beyond sport. And then you talked about shop window. Let me deal with beyond sport first, because clearly you feel that the athletes past and present really must have a voice in the direction that sport and, and not just sport takes that through sport, you can really influence, you can flick the social, political, cultural dial in, in so many different ways. And you've just articulated that. You talked about the shop window. Well, of course, the shop window for the Paralympic Games is, is a few weeks off now. Uh, let's talk about sports performance for a moment. How do you think the current crop are going to be dealing with some of the challenges in Tokyo? We know that these are not a Games uh, as usual. In fact, they'll be pretty unusual. And most of the top competitors have had uh, a year's postponement. Do you think they're going to deal with that? And how would you have gone about it? Wow. I thought about that a lot. And it's just, you know, what, what we want as athletes 
is routine. We want to know what we're doing every day. We want, um, we, we, we want to be able to plan two, three years ahead. And these guys have not been able to do that. Um, it's going to come down to, to mental toughness. A lot of these, a, a lot of these games, it's going to come down to who has prepared the best they can mentally. Um, and, and it's going to be about the support staff, keeping the athletes healthy and keeping them in the right mi mindset. Um, and, and I think more than ever that mental toughness has always been a, a massive part. You know this, Seb, you know, winning your, your gold medal in, in, in 84 was about toughness. That was what that celebration you did uh, at the end of that was all about because of everything that you'd gone through to, to, to get there. And I think we naturally as athletes to get to where we or to, to get to the bet to the top or to get to the stage where we're competing at the Paralympics or Olympics, we have that mental toughness and we have that resilience. Um, so I, I also think it might be, there might be some surprises that, you, you know, it might, now, part of me might think in some sports it will level the playing field, but in other sports it will actually um, give countries with the most resources a bigger advantage. Um, and I'm probably going to, going to the latter. So I think countries like the UK and the USA, you know, the westernised countries with the big, big pockets who are able to provide facilities um, may have a slight advantage um, because, you know, the, 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 some athletes would not have been able to travel to camps where they've been able to, 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 to level the playing ground. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be about mental toughness, really. And I, I think the UK team will do OK. But it's an unknown, Seb. When, when have we ever had something like this affect sport? No, it's it's without precedent. It's without no, precedent. No spectators. Potentially, yeah. athletes could uh, could 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 catch COVID or, or or the day before their event. You know, you've got that hanging over you. Uh, athletes are in bubbles. I know the wheelchair basketball team are having to send their starting lineup. Um, ahead separately from their second lineup, and the only way their their second lineup meets is when they're about to play. I mean, yeah. it's madness. No, it's it, it's without compare. Um, beyond sport, because you really have carved out a life beyond sport. You were recently featured on the Powerlist uh, One Hundred as one of the most influential uh, British Black people. Uh, you were the first black disabled presenter to host a documentary series uh, on the BBC. And recently uh, you've hosted Addy on the Frontline, where you've travelled to those areas most impacted by climate change, the blight of climate change, some would say. Uh, and it's real travel. I mean, you've gone from the Solomon Islands to, to Tasmania. And this is a this is a passion uh, of yours. Again, it's giving voice to the profile that you gain through sport for something that you also believe as passionately in, isn't it? Definitely, Seb. And I mean, I, I, I'm not going to preach to anyone. Um, everyone works within their skill set and goes for their passion and what works for them. For me, I believe that I am 
extremely fortunate to have a platform and a profile and a voice that people listen to. Um, and, and so I think it's for me, and it's incredibly, incredibly important that I use that for the greater good to empower and educate people. And that's why I, my documentary series are about giving people who don't have a voice a voice. The climate change series was about, I've been, always been passionate about climate change and, 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 and more, more so than climate change, but our planet and being in tune with our planet, because I feel that human, we as a human race have become less and less in tune with our planet. Um, and, and I wanted to try and tell the stories of people living on the front line of climate change. Now I felt the story of climate change has been told through the window of, of science for so long. And science is great because it's the basis. It tells us, you know, really what is happening and why climate change is happening. But I felt the real way to get people to understand it and to get the urgency across is for you to see how is it affecting an everyday person just like you. What's it like for Gladys Habu, who lives in the Solomon Islands, to see her grandparents' island within 10 years disappear because of sea level rise? What's it like to live in Bangladesh where you know that if we do not, if the world doesn't change our attitude in, uh, to the way we use our resources, that 75% of that country will be underwater and that will leave tens of millions of refugees traveling across that region of the world, unsettling that region of the world, causing unrest, causing wars, causing all sorts of problems. You know, I, I, I wanted people to see that firsthand. And I think if COVID has taught us anything, what it should teach us is that something can be thousands and thousands of miles away, but can still have an impact on the whole world. Um, and I'm fortunate enough because of my profile and because of what I've achieved in sport that I've been given this platform to be able to do this. And, and this, is, this is for me, it's what I enjoy empowering people and educating people and, and giving people the opportunity to, to, to maybe try and improve their lives. Listen, I've taken up about as much of your time today as I dare, <laughs> but I'm going to just have a quick romp across the landscape because it's worth repetition and I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball at you. You have gained a membership of the British Empire for all the things that you've done, and that was mainly through sport. You've been a Paralympic medalist and a Paralympian. You, as we talked about, you rose to 69 on the tennis ranking list. You've competed in the London Marathon in what is a very creditable two and a half hours. I've talked about the Power List 100. You're an award-winning television presenter. Proudest achievement amongst all of those? Um. Uh, by the way, I should have gone sub two hours for the marathon, but I... Of course you should have done, Eddie. Of course you should have done. I messed up my training and I was, uh, I, I, I'd spent a couple of days in, in, in Cuba um, and I came back. I came back from Cuba the day before the marathon. Yeah, that's, that's not great preparation, Eddie. Not great prep. But is, there's still time. There's still time. There is. There is there's definitely still time. But um, my proudest achievement... It might not be in that list. 
And no, can, no, no, I, it might not be contained in that list. No, no, I, I think it, within that list, what I would say is to have fought, to have been able to forge a career in media for 20 years. Um, I mean, I've been in and out of TV since 1999. And if somebody had told me as, as a kid that I would have had the opportunity to do this, I, I, I would never have believed them. And the, simply the reason why I say that is because without that, I wouldn't have been able to give back and I wouldn't have had the opportunity. I, I don't think I would have been on your radar to get me along for the, to be part of that team that went out to yeah. see you know, it, it was a catalyst and opened those doors and it given me an opportunity to do bigger things. Um, so, yeah, I think to be able to, to be a, a black disabled TV presenter in the public eye for over two decades and, and to be able to do work that I'm proud of, such as bringing the games to the UK, such as, you know, the, the, my climate change series, the Africa series, and uh, um, being one of the hosts for the Paralympic Games in 2012. Yeah, I'm, I can't be prouder than, than, than that. Those things, are, those things are amazing because I think it's, it leaves that, it's that L word. It leaves a legacy for a, a generation of kids who are like me, not just, they, they don't even just have to look like me. Any kid can now see, well, look what Addy done and look where he came from. Maybe I can do the same and maybe I can do better. Well, Addy, I was very grateful you were in Singapore with us because it did make a huge difference. Uh, if we're talking in five years time and I'm gauche enough to ask you again to join my podcast series, <laughs> what would you like to have added to that list? I mean, it's a simple question. What's next? What's next? Um, first and foremost, um, this year, my wife gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, baby Bola, um, my first son. Uh, I want to be able to, to, to bring him up right, bring him up in a world where he sees the sky as the limit, you know, and, and sees no limitations to what can be achieved. You know, I want, I, I want to be able to, 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 for my son to believe that he can absolutely achieve anything. Um, and I want him to know that once upon a time, he's, he's old man. He was half decent at a few things. Eddie, you were more than half decent about a few things. Uh, I can't think of a better way to close our conversation today. I'm really grateful. And thanks, mate. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Ed. Really love talking to you, mate. See you soon. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales, brought to you by CSM. 